People with nerves should never go into the movies, and people without nerve can't. Marion Davies Chapter 22 By the time of Cooper and my big summer release, I had, at the behest of Bob Brown, replaced James Ellis at the studio as head of production. I had become a suit, and I vowed to myself, if not anyone else, I would never forget movies were made on cavernous stages and dusty streets all over the world, not in the corporate tower where my old boss had held sway. What of my old boss? The guitar-strumming scion of the old Hollywood family had decamped the area for the trout streams of Montana. We'll back up here for a moment and go back to the night of the earthquake in the household of James Ellis in the ticky-tacky enclave of mansions off the 405. When the earthquake struck, Mrs. Ellis woke, grabbed the hard hat she kept under the bed, jammed it on her head, then noticed Mr. Ellis was conspicuously absent. After looking for her errant husband for what seemed like an age, muttering imprecations, the nicest of which featured the words, old fool, she found him. He sat illuminated by her flashlight on the hill behind their house, with an expression on his face that hovered between the beatific and the imbecilic. He smiled at her and said something about a 4-4 backbeat rhythm leaking from the cracks in the earth and rising in a stream of luminous color unto heaven. He tilted back until he was lying on the ground, humming and grinning into the dark. As he later told the missus, he had received a gift from an old friend, a one-time member of Ken Kesey's 1960s countercultural seekers and psychedelic drug enthusiasts named the Merry Pranksters. The gift-giving prankster went by Sequoia. His birth name was Stan. Stan, or Sequoia, had never lost his conviction that drugs were the one true sacrament, as well as being the key to the locked door of existence, despite having made millions back in the 80s playing the stock market. It wasn't a shock to Ellis, therefore, that the gift enclosed in a letter sent from the Merry Prankster's distant ranch was some extraordinarily potent LSD, like Mother used to make not the low-grade stuff that was now prevalent. Knowing Mrs. Ellis didn't approve of him taking anything stronger than Tylenol, he waited until she went upstairs with a headache, and after making sure she was safely asleep, he went outside and availed himself of the opportunity to view the world unshackled from the norms of consensus reality. That is to say, he dropped a tab of acid and tripped his balls off. Bouncing through perception as he was, he determined he would like to repeat the journey on a regular basis. So he took early retirement and headed for a life off the fault lines. Today in Hollywood, and I use that term loosely because most movies aren't shot here anymore, they are filmed primarily in Atlanta, New York, London, and on location anywhere but Hollywood because of tax incentives given by said locations which translate to millions more pocketed by fat cat conglomerates. There are so many lucrative incentives spread around that companies end up selling them to one another. For example, say a production company reaps a 30% tax incentive in Atlanta. 
That means every plank of wood purchased to build a set, every actor's fee, every piece of equipment rented, the studio gets, well, there's no nice way of saying this, a kickback. If an actor's fee is a million dollars, the state of Georgia gives the studio an incentive worth 300000 You start adding things up and it gets crazy. If you have several movies shooting at the studios in Peachtree City, you probably will start selling off your incentives at a reduced rate to Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola, rolling in sweet sugar dollars, locally based, then gets its own enormous kickback. Meanwhile, the experienced crews in Hollywood are sent away for months at a time. I'm sorry, I do get distracted sometimes. Forgive me. As I was saying, in Hollywood, employees are contractually obligated not to squeal on social media about the internal workings of the Dream Factory. At the dawn of the cinema era, the telephone was a novelty. Telegraph ruled, and any scandal that splashed out onto the pages of the yellow press could kill a career. Although, conversely, good publicity could make one. By the time the 1930s rolled around, publicity departments controlled the message. And by the 1990s, that control was taken over by large international corporations. Studio heads like Bob Brown spent a lot of time explaining movie magic to those even higher on the ladder than he in far-flung home offices, where high returns on investments were the ultimate, art and entertainment were considered product, and creative personalities were a confounding mystery. He presented a peppery disposition to the world to keep the corporate overlords at bay, and he had a real soft spot for people like me. Well, yeah, just like me. I could be his child. I loved the movie industry. I had come up through the ranks and respected the process. I shouldn't say it, but I will. I was a hell of a lot more diplomatic than he, and I wouldn't take any nonsense from directors, agents, or anyone above or below the line. His assessment of my character was pretty much on point, except for that bit about not taking any nonsense from directors, or one director specifically. But once again, we're getting a bit ahead of our story. As head of production, I was the studio's Glinda the Good, watching over an entire slate of films, shooting and scheduled to begin years out. My conviction was the people who wrought the hard-won movie magic deserved a champion. Once those ruby slippers were on and the cameras began to roll, I stood tall, strong, and sparkling behind my projects a protective arm around cast and crew. Bob had confided to me after my hire that he felt supremely pleased with his choice. His exact words went something like this. Billy, you did good. I can't trust those guys, goddamn them, to run shit. The higher up they get, the less they do and what they do. I had one swipe 375 grand from an art department budget and weeks of a construction coordinator's time on a project in production on my goddamn dime to build a new addition for his fucking house. Another dickhead rented out the top floor of a hotel in New York where the dipshit didn't think I'd notice, along with a crew of hookers to celebrate his movie's opening. One allowed a director to fly his $10,000 a day 
girlfriend out to location first class. They cut deals under the table for Christ. That's enough. That's more than enough. Thieves and perverts, and they give Hollywood a bad name. Ellis, yeah, he was okay. A little, let's just say, off somewhere in his own head. Better for him to retire. My studio isn't spotless, for God's sakes. The first head had secret passages built so he could... One corner of his mouth turned down in a disapproving grimace. Visit starlets on the sly. You. His eyes met mine. Our credit to your parents. You talk clean. You deal straight. You care. Keep it up. Thus, it occurred to me the reason for Bob Brown's promotion of women through his studio's ranks. Women weren't, to put it simply and in general, sleazy. Billy Burke had played the Goodwinch of the North in the 1939 movie The Wizard of Oz. And, like the performance of my namesake, there were some that found my movie magic managerial style a little saccharine. Yet it proved very effective, and it set a tone that was approved of heartily by my boss. Projecting both spine and sweetness and light became my mission. And like most missionaries, I found my vocation all-consuming. However, I always carved out time for Jake and my friends. My friends had become my West Coast family. One night, we were gathered way above Los Feliz, beyond where Cecil B. DeMille could catch a glimpse of Paramount from his hilltop palace, and where he could practically stare down into youngster Walt Disney's backyard. The house was Darla's. When it was built, it was a guest house behind a grand Spanish home. Now it stood by itself where the neighborhood went from eclectic, eccentric dwellings to the edge of a wilderness, craggy with mountains and populated by deer, skunks, raccoons, coyotes, crows, falcons, lime-green parrots that screeched at sunrise, and the occasional bobcat. A winding road stopped just a few feet from the front door, and the home had the breezy feel of a white stucco treehouse, all the windows flung open. There we sat, the mogul's daughter turned academic, the copywriter turned designer, the semi-profane raconteur turned showrunner, the pragmatist turned legal advocate, and me, the nanny turned studio executive. It was late, the conversation was flowing, the scent of night-blooming vines hung in the air. There were altogether too many candles glowing on the coffee table amid bowls of almonds and dusky purple grapes. Darla, having had four glasses of wine already, raised her glass and said, I love you lads, really, I do. Agreement all around and eyes shining, Darla continued. You know, a long time ago this place was so much, so much more, she struggled for the word, informal. The big money hadn't moved in, or the big bosses, the silent era. You know, Mary Pickford, America's sweetheart, she was a feckin' pioneer. Women wrote most of the movies. The biggest director around was a woman. Everyone chipped in and helped each other. Frances Marion, the woman who came up with the narrative screenplay, wrote over 300 of them, won two Oscars. Well, she came out here to be an actress, but instead she started writing scenarios, little outlines for that director I was telling you about, Louise Weber. She met Mary Pickford in 
Oh, I don't know, 1914. They couldn't have been much older than 20 and watch out, friends for life. They changed how movies were made, how stories were told. Yeah, most of the writers were women. All the editors were women. They produced, they directed. I ask you, what the hell happened? That was 80, 81 years ago. What the hell happened? Aren't we friends for life? I asked. Sure, and you're a meckety mech just like me, and let me tell you, we, we women here are few and far between, and where, where's it gotten us, lads, really? Where's it gotten us? Jane, hovering, suddenly sat by Darla's side and looked to Natalie. Hey, I thought I was the one who gave history lectures, said Natalie. Polly laughed and reached to take Darla's wine glass. You want me to get you some water? Darla slept her glass away from Polly, splashing half the contents on the floor, which she either didn't notice or care about. This'll be my last. I meant to tell you sober, but I'm not, Darla replied. Not at all. Jane rested her warm, dry hand on Darla's surprisingly clammy arm. That's all right, Darla. That's perfectly okay. What did you want to tell us? Darla set her glass down with both hands on the coffee table. I'm going home. That's all. Home? I asked. My folks moved to London last year. Polly looked troubled. You're going to London? To be with my mum, really. I just want to be with my mum. We were quiet. Jane put her hand to the back of Darla's neck and then to her forehead. You're feverish. No, uh, maybe. I've got cancer. Darla stared down at the table, stared down and said clearly, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Not something they can cut away. Not like a tumor. If I'm gonna get stuck full of tubes and pumped full of crap that's gonna make me feel as fucking awful as the... I don't... What should I call it? The illness? Yeah, the illness itself. Then I want to be home. Not here in feckin' toy town. I want to be home, that's all. She took a deep, quavering breath that we could hear wheeze through her windpipe. As a shared reaction to Darla's obvious debilitation, to this evidence of life's mysterious caprice, each of us felt a sudden loss of balance as if reality had split open, revealing the edge of a chasm, revealing all you thought you knew, way down deep in your core, could be turned upside down in an instant. Darla, once vivacious and now not a bit so, hadn't raised her eyes from the coffee table. I was coursing with adrenaline. That's, Polly interrupted. That makes sense. When? Natalie, who had been struck silent by the news, found her voice. Are things arranged? She shook her head. That's not what I meant. I'm sorry, I... She rubbed at her mouth, and tears started to roll down her cheeks. Do you have your ticket yet? Jane asked. Darla shook her head. You could come see my mom. She's a doctor. Again, another shake of the head. I still cast down. I glanced at the window. The sky was a deep ultramarine. Venus was hanging above a sliver of a crescent moon near the horizon. I'll get tickets, I said. I'll take you home. Darla smiled and looked up, her eyes even greener for the dark circles under them. Shall we walk? I'm all buzzed and I don't know what to do with it.
Good idea, said Polly. Jane nodded warily and signaled to Natalie, who took off her sweater and put it around Darla's shoulders. I opened the front door, and we stepped out into the hills. Darla flanked by Polly and Jane, Natalie and I strolling behind. It was very still, very dry, and an hour or two before first light. The funny thing is, we all thought the moment was a singular manifestation our tight group walking out into the dark of very early morning. But we saw others, lots of people, by themselves or in pairs, and with the kinship of early risers, the others would nod and wave, and in quiet voices there were sweet good mornings, and some would say knowingly, Santa Anna on the way. The Santa Anna wind sweeps down the mountains to the east and blows out toward the sea. It's a hot wind crazy dry, full of positive ions. It carries fungal spores that can cause an illness called valley fever. It makes people anxious and wakeful and ignites with the smallest of sparks an inferno that can wipe out a city. It's a catabic wind, which is Greek for running downhill. There are other winds that make your lips crack and your mind race. The Mistral, the Sirocco, and the Diablo have been stirring up damnation for eons. Yet, it wasn't just the atmosphere that made us edgy. It had more to do with our hearts in sync that had begun to stutter and miss a beat. And we, not even out of our thirties, felt time was running out. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.